Nate Checkets, founder of the brilliant Roan Company, apparel creator, uh, my COVID pants. I can provide no higher praise that when you look like you're wearing a suit, you know, above the fold, uh, I'm wearing Roan beneath. This is the most comfortable clothing ever. And that's saying something because I'm, I'm already that way inclined to, to care about the feel of the clothes that I'm in as much as the look. Uh, with, with that genuine personal endorsement, welcome to the show. <laughs> that is about as high praise as anyone can give. The pants I've been wearing are roan during COVID. And, you know, frankly, it's been consistent. I've, I've had a lot of friends and, you know, we've had customers reach out who have said, you know, the only thing I've worn during COVID has been roan. So we're, uh, we're definitely thrilled to hear it. And, you know, I think most people care about comfort and I certainly am, you know, overly sensitive to it. So I'm, I'm glad to hear it's resonating with you. We were once under a mandatory evacuation from our home due to the fires. And so we had whatever, you know, an hour or two at most to, to get out and to be gone. And we have our emergency supplies. We have a 72-hour packs. We had actually just long enough that we could pack our own things as well, and we were, we were gone. As we were going through the 72-hour packs of clothes, uh, for me, all the clothes I had packed fit. But I learned... In a way, I think you can only learn if you actually experience something like that, that it's not whether they fit. In, in a moment when things are uncomfortable uh, and uncertain, what you want is something that is completely comfortable and normal. It was one way of learning the same lesson, which is that comfort has an increased value in uncomfortable times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is nothing like necessity as as they say you know as the is the mother of invention it's it's the mother of need and these last 8 months have really taught us you know kind of what we care most about i i've always told our product team that you know we should aim to have clothing that is so good that when everything in your closet is clean it's the first thing you want to wear and that you're genuinely upset when it's dirty and when it's not clean you know that you're kind of maybe scrambling through the laundry or that it's the reason to do the laundry is that, you know, that particular shirt or pant or short is, uh, is, is not clean. And so that's kind of the standard that we hold ourselves to. And I've seen it across a number of different customers, but one that stands out to me is um, we have a lot of people in the, you know, U.S. military special forces that wear our product. And the reason why is they say it's highly durable you know, it's functional and it's versatile and, it, you know, it's, it lasts. And so that's about the highest praise we can get is, you know, it's first out of the closet and, and we have special forces and you putting it into a, a 72 hour kit. I'm going to have to add that to our repertoire. <laughs> um, you want it to be the priority item of clothing in the closet. Exactly. Yeah. You said something interesting already, you, just an aside, but was like, I'm already overly sensitive to that myself. And I wonder if you can tell me more about what you mean about that. But also what I think is in that comment is perhaps some of the origin story of Roan. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting, Greg. I, I believe you 
may have children. I have I have three boys, and I I love my kids. They are my uh, everything, and and I'm so fortunate to to have amazing children. But one of the things that they consistently have, which they unfortunately get from their father, is they have a high degree of sensitivity to their clothing, meaning. You know the the socks have to fit just so the you know the comfort quality of the pants. You know we we attend you know Sunday church services. We haven't, but you know in the past we have, and they could not change out of those clothes into more comfortable clothes faster than anyone. And you learn a lot about yourself through having children, and that's one of the things that I have learned is just oh my gosh, they, you know these poor kids they get it from their old man. I was always that way. You know, I, I was always, you know, highly sensitive and our, and our product team still uh, teases me about this because, you know, I will point out the smallest seam, the smallest, you know, kind of discomfort with anything that we make, because I guess I have a natural sensitivity to it. And there's probably a diagnosis in there somewhere. But part of what drove us to, to build Roan was that we saw these kind of two big clusters in the activewear segment. You had all of the brands that we had grown up with, you know, that had mass distribution through, you know, typically wholesale channels that made everything, you know, that they had to mark up and then mark up again to sell, which meant that they were making things out of the absolute cheapest fabric possible to achieve a certain margin profile and achieve a certain price profile. And then you had all of this innovation coming in the uh, women's space. In fact, we saw 200 female-focused brands, none of which exceeded more than 15% of their revenue to men, but they were at a price premium to these other brands, but they had more direct channel distribution, meaning they were selling primarily direct to their customers, either through their own retail stores or through um, their own website. So this meant that they didn't necessarily have to market up twice to reach a certain targeted margin. And they were more expensive, which meant that they were putting, in some cases, four times as much cost into the same type of garment that these big brands were that they were selling. Well, the quality is just going to improve when you do that. And when we looked on the men's side of the equation, there was not a single male-focused brand that had kind of taken a direct distribution strategy using premium fabrication, interesting technology and innovation. And we thought, you know, this is less than 15% of these other brands' times. We could go and do it and spend 100% of our time, effort, and focus and figure out how to make product that is completely dialed into the way men live, work, and sweat today. Because it's changed. It's changed somewhat dramatically. And, and you know, that's really how we got started. So there's two stories there. The first was your high empathy for your own boys. Uh, I do have children myself. You're right about that. Four children, three girls and a boy. You had a personal discovery where you realized, you probably already realized that you cared about the feel uh, of fabric and the sensitivity of touch. But listening to them, you realized, no, it's, they're not just complaining. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> not, right. They're not just whining. It's different. You know, talking about another lesson that you learned from your children, my oldest son, uh, who I mentioned is 11, you know, is, is quite dyslexic. And, you know, when we understood that and, you know, kind of his challenges with reading and processing certain information, I started spending a lot of time reading about it. And one of the first books that was recommended to me was called The Dyslexic Advantage. 
you know, it's such an interesting title, right? Because generally when you think about mm. anything like dyslexia, you think about it as a disability or uh, an ability hindrance of, of some kind. And the author does a really great job and, and, and gives this fantastic example where he mm-hmm. explains if you were to look up the top 50 home run hitters of all time in Major League Baseball, you know, you would find those same names, the exact same names on the top 100 strikeout list. And the reason why is because in order to hit the ball that far, you need to be swinging for the fences. And when you start swinging for the fences, it becomes really difficult to get singles and doubles and, you know, focus on getting on on base, so to speak. And, you know, oftentimes when we talk about things like dyslexia or sensitivities, you might focus on the challenges that that presents, but you don't focus as much time and effort and energy, or we certainly don't, you know, with things like dyslexia to talk about the fact that if you're dyslexic, you're 10 times more likely to be an entrepreneur or an architect or to be successful in, you know, all these different um, career paths where dyslexia is actually a distinct advantage versus not being dyslexic. There's a story that reminds me of um, where parents are really concerned about their daughter. Uh, the teacher is as well. Look, they just will not sit still. Uh, you know, they're just so difficult in class. And they take them to a therapist of some kind for an evaluation. And after they've watched the child, in a normal home environment, behaving and so on. After a while, they, they say, okay. And they, they go and talk to the parents and they just say, look, you, your daughter doesn't have a problem. She's a dancer. <laughs> yeah. And I, I find that story really touching because so much of the modern education system, which is pretty much to say the education system, yeah. uh, is factory-based system. Uh, you you are to learn in rows. You are to face one way. You are to learn and regurgitate information. Right. I mean, this is fine if what you're trying to do is prepare people to work in administrative jobs as part of uh, the empire, which is exactly <laughs> what it was built to do. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what you want. You want people that can work in, you know, as middle managers, following orders, doing the work accurately based upon your hierarchical leader and so on. Like it's, there is a place for that, but what about everybody else? Yeah. Well, and it may even be that it was a system that was built to educate, you know, a a majority of people, 80% of of people may learn better in a system like that, but it, it just certainly does not mean that it is right for everyone or that it's the, you know, the right fit. And I think we've seen, um, you know, a lot of growth, maybe even arguably an explosion in new um, and different teaching methodologies. You know, you're you're talking about the kind of Montessori programs and and others that are meant to be kind of more hands-on, active learning experiences, unstructured. And I think it's great because, you know, truthfully, it this is not a we we know that each of us is unique, right? We know that from our fingerprints down to our personalities. And so it certainly would would lead us to believe that the way we learn is unique. And understanding the way you learn, I think, is so critical to finding any level of success because 
you know, that ultimately dictates your path. And just because you might not learn the way that 80% of the population doesn't mean that you can't be successful. In fact, you might be successful specifically because you do not learn the way the rest of the world learns. Yes, I think it's key in trying to work out your highest point of contribution, uh, that it's, it's precisely the things that make you different that can become what is most valuable. So, you know, I was fortunate to, to grow up, as I, as I mentioned, with just an amazing father who um, worked in professional sports. He, you know, he worked with the Utah Jazz and then he worked with the New York Knicks. And my older brother, who was four and a half years older than me, was and, you know, is certainly older now, but a fantastic basketball player, total natural on the court. When he touched the basketball, you know, he just everything went in. And I remember I so wanted to be like that. And I wasn't. I just it didn't come naturally to me. And, um, you know, I would spend hours on the basketball court outside in the light. And I remember, you know, kind of maybe thinking or feeling like, gosh, I don't even know that I like this. (laughs) But it didn't cross my mind to kind of not keep pursuing it because I felt a natural amount of pressure, you know, just from friends or people who knew what my dad did or knew how Spencer played to, um, you know, to pursue the sport, to be good at it. And um, I remember we went to pick Spence up one summer at Five Star Basketball Camp, which in the Northeast, and maybe it's, you know, outside of that, is the absolute best basketball camp you can attend. You have to be invited to play. And so we went to go pick him up. And I was in an empty gym with a basketball, just kind of shooting, waiting for Spence. And I remember my dad came up to me and he said something to the extent of, son, I hope you don't feel pressure to play this sport. There are plenty of other sports that you might enjoy a lot more. And I remember I was like absolutely dejected. Like he can, he can tell, even he can tell I'm really not very good. And, you know, I spent, I spent some time feeling sorry for myself and, you know, kind of bringing it up with him. And he's Mm. like, no, I think you just might be more suited for other sports. And so I decided to shift my focus. I found a place playing football. And, you know, I ended up having a a nice little high school football career, Uh, you know, was very satisfied and very fulfilled doing that. But it wasn't until I kind of freed myself from this burden of feeling like I had to play, I had to play this sport, you know, for all of these reasons. And, and so I, you know, I kind of remember that and I'm really trying to be sensitive with that, with my own kids are like, what are the things that they might be feeling pressure on that, you know, I don't even know that I'm, you know, contributing to. I love that story and the gentleness and strength in in your father in that moment to be able to give you permission to not take the path that your older sibling did. And it, it really speaks, I think, to a leadership uh, orientation that says, look, you don't have to try and do everything that everyone else is doing now. What you need to do is figure out your personal, unique, highest point of contribution. You know, that you do the right things at the right time for the right reasons. Yeah, it's so freeing. It is like, it is the most freeing concept to understand that, you know, you are unique. You, you know, and, and spending time with yourself with your thoughts. This is this is a concept that we, you know, and I, I love that you explore this so much because I think it is 
so critical. Right now, we we have become hyper consumers of everything, and we rarely spend time with just our own thoughts. It just doesn't happen enough. And when you think about being a consumer of content or a creator of content, ask yourself, put it on a graph. How much time are you spending in creation mode? You know, and, and creating could be sitting with your own thoughts and kind of exploring your own thoughts. It could certainly be taking, you know, pen or pencil to paper. It could be, you know, kind of writing or expressing. Um, and how much time are you spending consuming content? And the vast majority of us, the vast majority, we are spending 90 to 95% of our time consuming. And what that means is we're not giving any time to in, in exploration. And that means that we will not know ourselves well enough to be able to make good decisions for, for us. Because had I not been given kind of that freedom and encouraged and almost hit over the head, of kind of exploring the other sports that I might have some success of, I might have continued to to struggle with, you know, a very mediocre basketball skill set that probably would not have given me the same sense of satisfaction had I switched. And it's a small example, but there's just, you know, that that obviously leads to more things. And I just think it's really, really important that we challenge, you know, how much time are we creating and how much time are we consuming? About 12 years ago, I created this book template. And now every time I read a book, I tell myself, I actually consume most of my content through audio. I have to stop before I read my next book and I have to fill this like mini book report out so that I can both retain it and figure out what I'm going to change or learn from it, do differently as a result. I sometimes think myself that I haven't read a book unless I've reread it. Mm, So good. Now, you said that you use a book template, and I want to know exactly what's on the template. It starts with the three main takeaways. You know, here are my three main takeaways, and, um, and then I list on the side page numbers you know, so that I can kind of point back to the things that really stood out to me. And in some cases, those might be um, uniquely tailored to, to my experience or what I was looking for, because we tend to find out of content you know, what we're looking to get out of content. Some, in some cases, there, there, there may be some confirmation bias there. And then I also put a space for three quotes, you know, kind of three individual passages that really stood out to me that were kind of really, really powerful. And they might be related and most often are related and kind of pertaining to the three core concepts. And then below is kind of just an open box, write up paragraph of here's what I'm going to do differently as a result of kind of reading this, or here's how I plan to, to change or adjust. What was the last book that you filled the template out for? I read this book that my team gave me, which has been proven to be quite uh, prophetic for the time that uh, we're in called Leadership in Turbulent Times. It's by Doris Kearns Goodwin, I believe is her name. And she um, is a historian, and she basically takes four presidents and talks about their leadership during difficult times that they've gone through. And you know, this has been uh, one of the most difficult times to navigate. What were your three takeaways from the book? Leadership in a crisis is always more difficult than it appears for you know, kind of the the greater public, and that's okay. One of the things that I I was concerned with during the early stages of this pandemic is feeling like I was supposed to have all of the answers. You know, I'm the CEO of of this brand and I'm supposed to know 
how I'm going to handle the fact that the country is closed. And that was a scary thought because I had honestly no idea. I didn't know any more than the person next to me whether or not we were going to be closed for two weeks or two months or two years. And so it's okay to not have all the answers, even if your team and kind of uh, believe and expect you to. And then I think the second main um, takeaway for me that really stood out is um, is that people need to know that you care about them um, more than you know, kind of having the answers to the pressing question. That there is a level of empathy with your core team that is really critical in building up those relationships in these moments of strain. And then the last piece for me was kind of leaning on your key lieutenants um, and surrounding yourself with really talented people. How did that translate into actions in this turbulent time? It's been, you know, in some ways a, a guidebook, but, you know, I think, I think what I have really emphasized and focused my energy on as we've been remote and our team has been remote, you know, really since like most since March is making sure that I spend unstructured time with my direct reports and caring about them and getting to know, uh, you know, kind of details that maybe I wouldn't be able to know in, a, in an office environment. And, you know, before when we would do our, our touch bases, our weekly touch bases, you know, we would always, of course, say, how was the weekend? What, you know, what did you go through? But we are making sure that we have unstructured time to just catch up, just to speak, um, because the, the moments of the in-betweens, you know, the, 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 you know, kind of being in between the hallways or the, you know, the water cooler talk is gone, but we still need that time. We've arranged for uh, lunches where people get randomly paired on our team. And we provide kind of a, a DoorDash uh, gift card for them once a month to meet and spend 30 minutes in an unstructured time with another person on the team just to get to know them better. I try to write gratitude notes to every single person on the team, you know, no matter if they're a customer service person or my co-founder. I make sure I write to all of them. Um, so sorry about that, Greg. You may be hearing some background noise. The kids are home. <laughs> I love that as much as anything in this interview. That's like that is like real family life. <laughs> they're and, they're and they are home. The kids are home. And and, and, and it's here. it's COVID. I mean, seriously, before COVID, you had to pretend that there was no personal family life. Yeah. You you're on calls, you're in meetings. It's like pretend that this doesn't exist. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, Oh, well, actually, yeah, you know do have a family. <laughs> well, yeah. and, and like somehow we've pretended against it. I mean, and the reason why, you know, that resonates with us is because we all feel it. I had a, I had a situation where my five-year-old, I, I love it because he is so bold. He just doesn't care. I mean, he doesn't, it doesn't matter to him at all if I'm on a call or a video and I will say, Hey, you know, son, I'm, I'm on a call. I'm trying to finish this up. And he, he does not care. He's going to tell me exactly what is on his mind no matter what. And I was doing an interview with Entrepreneur Magazine. For me, it was a, you know, it was a big milestone to, with the managing editor of this nice, prestigious publication. And he decides to walk in mid-interview and tell me all about his most recent bowel movement. And <laughs> I just, oh man, I, I, was, I was definitely embarrassed, but not so much that I think I, I took it out uh, on him at all. And the managing editor, he thought it was the greatest thing ever. 
And I think that's been the, the great thing about it is people have been so understanding that way. But yes, it is real life. And in the Chekhov's household, that is, that is definitely the case. I love it. I really love it. If I had to describe what I think is one of the primary challenges for people today is that there's no separation. Yeah, there's no separation. At all. I mean, post-lockdown, everything just disintegrated. Whatever separation. <laughs> Whatever barrier yes. there used to be. And it was a pretty puny barrier before. Right. And this protective barrier of, well, work happens there and home happens here had already given way, you know, for at least a decade, where as soon as you have smart devices, work follows you everywhere. Now, home sometimes follows you to work through the same devices, but far, far less than the other way around. You know, prior to this last few months, you could certainly have a work meeting follow you home, but you aren't going to bring your children into your Monday morning meeting. So it was always tilted one way. And when we talk about work-life balance, I don't even like that phrase because yeah, it's, like, it's like, come on, man. I mean, <laughs> what you mean is life balance because it's never that yeah. your work, well, I'm just spending too much time with my life here. I mean, what you mean is always too much work. So that was all prior to this. Well, now there's no separation. Everything, I mean, integrated is too too nice of a word. I mean, it's completely converged. And that generally what I see has happened is that work has consumed more and more. Yeah, I've already, you know, kind of begun putting that into place in my life in, in various forms. You know, there's, I've decided one day a week, my phone is just a phone. That's the only thing it can be used for. I use the time limit app or the screen time app rather on my phone, and you can get it very personalized now. And in order to break it, you know, you need to kind of give access to, to certain things. And uh, I'm crazy about it because I don't know. Have you had a chance to watch the, uh, the Social Dilemma? Yes. I found that movie fascinating, but not necessarily more informative. It basically told us what we already knew, but it did give us a chance to think about it. And, you know, for my wife and I, it was something that we spent time discussing and thinking about and just understanding how pervasive we have allowed technology to be into our lives. And so, you know, this was one of the, one of the ways that we have attempted to curb our phone habits. We also have um, a, a technology box in our house, as many families do, that for certain parts of the day, they, you know, all devices must go in there. And is it locked, the, the box, or it's just, hey, it's a place you put them? It's a place. I have seen, yeah. and I... You know, I, I remember in, in, uh, in the social dilemma that, you know, it's almost disturbing, but you understand why people do it, that, you know, there are effectively devices that you can put your, or containers rather, that you can put your devices into that will not allow you, <laughs> no matter what, to get into them. Um, you know, this idea of kind of saving you from yourself. Thankfully, I, we have not been at that point as of yet where it's, you know, become too easy to rationalize away that just the form of getting into the box was was enough. But it is crazy. It is a shocking thing that there are products that exist entirely to physically keep you from your phone. Let me bring our conversation here to a final question for you, which is 
what matters most to you and why? Well, it may, it may sound cliche, but, um, you know, for me, it is, it is about my principles. I think that probably matters most to me. And my principles are, you know, rooted and centered in uh, my faith and my family and in being kind. And I think that uh, the consistency of those principles is really what gives me the greatest amount of sustained joy in my life. That's a, it's a beautiful answer. Now give it to me in half the words. My principles. <laughs> And if you had to do it half again, you'd just say principles. Yes. What's the highest principle for you? Faith. Yeah. Uh, as, it's a beautiful answer to a beautiful conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed. I look forward to the conversation continuing. Thank you for being, uh, for being a guest on the What's Essential podcast. Thank you so much, Greg. Ladies and gentlemen, essentialists, one and all, we've come to that moment again, the end of the show. Thank you really sincerely for listening. And if you like this conversation, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave a review there, especially write a comment so that other people can find us and we can continue to grow the momentum of this essentialist tribe. It's been amazing to see what's happened already. This show is of, by, and for that essentialist community. And so please share with me through the website at either gregmcewan.com or essentialism.com your questions, your stories, your experiences with this podcast, with the book Essentialism, with your experiences. We can continue to expand and make a difference in the world. Uh, remember, if you don't remember anything else from today, to ask what's essential and eliminate as much as possible everything else.